since we are uh, continuing to work through the section of the Westminster Confession on the Doctrine of Scripture, it's uh, well that we read first from Acts 17, verses 10 to 14. Acts 17, verses 10 to 14. account of uh, the Apostle Paul among the Bereans. And the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Now these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, along with a number of prominent Greek women and men. But when the Jews of Thessalonica found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul in Berea also, they came there likewise, agitating and stirring up the crowds. And then immediately the brethren sent Paul out to go as far as the sea, and Silas and Timothy remained there. Would you then turn, please, to Isaiah chapter 8? And I'll, I'll read from verses 16 to 22. And uh, I will be uh, preaching on the whole of that uh, section from verses 16 to 22. And after that, I'll read from the Westminster Confession from uh, the first chapter. Isaiah 8, first, starting at verse 16. Bind up the testimony, seal the law among my disciples, and I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. I will even look eagerly for him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are for signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. And when they say to you, consult the mediums and the spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people consult their God? Should they consult the dead on behalf of the living? To the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. And they will pass through the land hard-pressed and famished. And it will turn out that when they are hungry, they will be enraged and curse their king and their God as they face upward. Then they will look to the earth and behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be driven away into darkness. And then from the Westminster Confession, Chapter 1, uh, a last-minute uh, change. So I think the bulletin says uh, one, Chapter 1, Article 8. But I'm going to read Articles 8 to 10, and only 8 is, is uh, in the bulletin. So Article 8 in the bulletin, and uh, the other two shorter articles I'll read. Article 8, 
the Old Testament in Hebrew, which was the native language of the people of God of old, and the New Testament in Greek, which at the time of the writing of it was most generally known to the nations, being immediately inspired by God and by his singular care and providence kept pure in all ages, are therefore authentical. So as in all controversies of religion, the church is finally to appeal unto them. But because these original tongues are not known to all the people of God, who have right unto and interest in the scriptures and are commanded in the fear of God to read and search them, therefore they are to be translated into the vulgar language of every nation unto which they come, that the word of God dwelling plentifully in all, they may worship him in an acceptable manner and through patience and comfort of the scriptures may have hope. And then uh, Article 9 goes on to say that the infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is the Scripture itself. And therefore, when there is a question about the true and full sense of any Scripture, which is not manifold but one, it must be searched and known by other places that speak more clearly. And then Article 10, the last one in this chapter the supreme judge by which all controversies of religion are to be determined and all decrees of councils, opinions of ancient writers, doctrines of men and private spirits are to be examined and in whose sentence we are to rest can be no other but the Holy Spirit speaking in Scripture. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we hear your word preached, would you cause it to cast its light onto us so that we examine ourselves by it, receive its instruction and its correction, its reproof where necessary, but also its comfort and hope and encouragement. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Covenant people of God, uh, members of Reformed churches are sometimes accused of looking more to the confessions uh, or even to the church order sometimes than to the Bible. After all, we just read from the Westminster Confession and we read from one of the confessions and have a related sermon uh, every week, once once a week. And uh, often our Bible study groups have studied the confessions and so forth. So uh, it's those kind of uses of a document uh, other than the Bible itself, or in addition to the Bible itself, it is that that has often led to that charge, that Reformed people put more importance and more emphasis on the confessions than they do on the Scripture. Well, I do, do not believe that that charge is justified or that it is generally true in our circles, Uh, There may have been and there may be some for whom that is true, but I don't believe it is uh, true generally in our churches. And in fact, uh, personally, I would uh, prefer it if uh, members of our churches would make more use of the confessions as a faithful summary of the doctrines found in God's Word, uh, more use than is sometimes made, but always maintaining the Scripture 
as, as we say it, as the primary standard. So the scripture first and other things such as the confessions uh, come after that. But the accusation does at least remind us to ask ourselves the question, where is your final court of appeal when controversies come up? Do you look to the scripture to answer that, to answer questions and controversies? Or just getting answers to those general questions of the faith, where do you turn to find those answers? Do you turn first to the primary standard, to the word of God, or do you look elsewhere? Well, the answer to that question is spelled out, and uh, perhaps there's a certain irony in this, but it is spelled out in this confession. So the confession itself is saying, first go to the scripture. And we look at that, we look uh, at Isaiah 8, but we will also be considering some of the things in how the Westminster Confession reflects on that, on Isaiah 8 and similar passages to uh, bring that matter before us. Two points as we do so. First of all, alternative courts. And then secondly, the final court. The alternative courts and the final court. In the first place then, there are several ways in which people might uh, seek to know either the future, something about the future, if that's troubling them, or they might seek to understand something that's going on at present or something that's happened in the past that they feel in some way is hidden from them. Unbelievers will generally prefer any method for doing that so long as it does not involve having to rely on God and his word. Because the minute they start to acknowledge that the word of God has answers, there is that uh, danger from their point of view that their whole system the whole system that the unbeliever has cobbled together may be toppled if they start to think in that way that the word of God has answers to these things. But surely it is both very sad on the one hand, but also on the other, simply hard to fathom why it is that members of God's church would resort to alternative sources of knowledge to discover things that the Bible should be turned to for answers or to settle disputes that the Word of God clearly settles. And there are a number of ways that that can come about and has come about through history, a number of ways in which God's own people have looked elsewhere for answers and one of those is found in our passage here in Isaiah and you might find it strange that God's people would do this but they resorted to consulting mediums and spiritists, as verse 19 says. And those uh, two terms, mediums and spiritists, uh, they're rather similar categories. Uh, the Old Testament, there's quite a few different words for magic users. And uh, these are two of those words, but there's quite a range of them involving different types of alleged magic in order to know the future or to find out hidden things. And the first of these words, a medium, comes from a word that means a bottle and a, a kind of a skin jug. And uh, the idea presumably being that uh, a person was claiming that they could be filled with the spirits of the dead, like a bottle being filled up with liquid. They could be filled up inside with the spirits of the dead and the spirits of the dead would then help them 
would tell them things about what was going to happen in the future or other things that were happening uh, that were more hidden in the world around us at present. And uh, this is what's sometimes called necromancy, uh, which means uh, death magic, magic involving the dead. And then the other word, spiritist, comes from a Hebrew word for knowledge. And the idea is that these were people who gained secret knowledge by magic again. And uh, in that way, it is uh, related to the English word wizard. It's probably quite a good uh, translation of it, wizard, because the word wizard also is derived from the word wise and has to do with the idea of someone getting, someone getting knowledge by magical means. And uh, so that's the, the word spiritist. Uh, knowledge by magical means, uh, as you find, for example, with fortune-telling, and again, that can include trying to get information from spirits and so on, which appears to be the emphasis here because it talks about uh, a couple of times it mentions this idea of consulting the dead. And both of these words could be described by the English word occult, the occult, which uh, it's a word that means hidden, Things that are occult are hidden. Uh, hidden or secret arts to produce secret knowledge, not available to the average person, but made available through magic of some kind to these practitioners. Now we can also see from verse 19 that this often involved much whispering and muttering. And it's interesting that in a way things haven't changed all that much because a lot of that which is done in, in the world today along similar lines is just like that. It involves people whispering and muttering and making strange, inarticulate noises as they supposedly get in touch with the dead or the spirits, the spirit world, and uh, supposedly give their answers to various questioning. It's done with a lot of whispering and muttering, perhaps to give the idea that well, since we're dealing with dead people, you can't expect them to speak loudly and clearly, so of course they're going to be communicating through funny noises and through whispers and so on, or to reinforce the idea that this is magic and secret, so you're not allowed to understand as an ordinary person what's actually being said. That has to come to you from the magic, the, the person practicing magic. Well, as I say, not much has changed. Uh, practitioners of the occult still put on these acts today and gullible people still pay them to do it. It is, of course, something that was strictly forbidden in the Scripture. Uh, Leviticus 19, verse 31, Leviticus 20, verse 6, and uh, those who practice those things and also those who uh, consulted with those who practiced them uh, they came under strict penalties, either death or exile in the Old Testament. Not only because, as Isaiah implies in verse 19, the dead actually can't help the living at all. What, what have they got to do with the living? They're, they're cut off. What have they got to do with the living? They can't help. The dead cannot tell you anything. Uh, they can't tell you any, give you any information about the future, or about what's going on in the world at present. And that's one reason for saying not to have anything to do with them in itself, but it's much more uh, serious than that. It is forbidden for much more serious reasons. Most significantly, 
because it is an insult to the Lord who is the only one who knows and determines the future. The only one who knows the hidden things of the present and the past and the only one who knows what things need to remain hidden to human beings living on this earth. And it is an insult to the Lord Jesus Christ who is the sum of all revelation, of all truth and knowledge. He is the sum and the fulfilment of all of that and he is revealed in the scripture with the aid of the Holy Spirit. So it is an insult both to the word of God and to what God has done in giving his word and to the sending of his spirit because the scripture, as we saw the other week, is sufficient. It tells us everything we need to know about salvation, about the Lord Jesus Christ, about serving God, about worshipping God, and it also tells us everything we need to know about the future. And so to try and bypass that and to look elsewhere on those subjects is to bypass the triune God at that point. And that is why the penalty in the Old Testament was so severe. And we see something of that, that the severity of this matter, why it's such a serious thing, or the fact that it is, we see that in the, the judgment that is pronounced in this passage as well. For that and other sins, the Lord was hiding himself from his own people in Israel, as verse 17 shows, because they were doing things like this, turning to magic and bypassing God's revelation. He says that those who look to these things, to the occult, have no dawn. Verse 20, that, what a strong statement that is. They've got no, no good future awaiting them, no bright and joyful dawn, no salvation in other words. And verse 21 and 22 go on to describe that doom, the, the emptiness of those people and the distress that awaits them and the darkness and the anguish to come which the Lord warns was not even going to lead them to repentance. It was only going to cause them to further rage against God and blaspheme his name, their king and their God. And then eventually they would be driven away into utter darkness. Well, hopefully none of us consult mediums and fortune tellers, or for that matter, follow the astrology columns in various newspapers and magazines. And uh, I, don't, uh, I don't think I've ever met someone in our churches who said that they seriously follow the, the astrology columns in the papers and magazines, but uh, I have from time to time met people who say that they like to read them for a laugh. But uh, perhaps there is some uh, problem also in that uh, as well, that um, this is not a laughing matter. This is a, in the Old Testament, this was the death penalty matter. That's how serious the matter was. This is uh, not something that we should deal with in that light kind of way. Uh, it's something to be taken seriously and kept away from. But uh, having said that, I guess there are other ways. If we are tempted to bypass God's word as reformed people today, there are other ways in which that is more likely to come. Not so much by going and visiting uh, fortune tellers and getting uh, tarot card readings and all that kind of thing. Not so much by that, but uh, there are other ways. Ways that are perhaps more tempting to Christians because it is less obvious when we're doing something wrong. 
And I'm thinking here of situations where God's people, uh, perhaps even inadvertently, come to rely more on the opinion of others, more on the opinion of other sources, uh, generally from believing sources, and they come to rely more on that than they do on the Word itself. Where, where, in fact, the first and the last word is given to mere men, even though they may be Christian men reflecting on the Bible, but nevertheless, where the first and the last word is given to men. And it's this kind of situation that the Westminster, has, the Westminster Confession has in mind in chapter 1, verse 10, in chapter 1, uh, article 10 where we read that the supreme judge of all religious controversies is not the decrees of the church and its councils, and that would include also the writing and the production of creeds and confessions that come from those councils. It, is not, it does not come that uh, supreme judge is not found in the view of ancient writers, such as the church fathers or the reformers, it does not come from the doctrine of individual men, no matter how great they may be, or from private interpretations, private uh, spirits, as it's expressed here. That's referring to private interpretations. It does not come from that. It is the Scripture, with the aid of the Holy Spirit, that is the supreme judge and the final word. And this is not to say that we shouldn't read and consider these other writings, and especially those that have been formulated by the church uh, very widely and collectively, such as the creeds and confessions, and tested over time. But we always need to remember that the highest authority and the final word on any matter is God's word. And that is why, for example, uh, you can, if you would have a mind to do so, I'm not saying I would recommend it, but if you have a mind to do so, you can bring through the courts of our church what is known as a gravamen, which is an appeal against a confessional article. If you are convinced that it is contrary to the scripture, you can do that and the church will weigh it up. And throughout history, that has been done sometimes, and some of the confessions have been slightly modified because of those things. But you can't do that with the scripture. You can't bring a gravamen against the word of God because it is not open to question. So yes, we can use those other resources as long as we remember where the highest and the final authority lies. Because only the scripture is infallible or inerrant. Only the scripture is completely authoritative and completely sufficient concerning salvation and knowing how to please God and how to serve God and how to worship God. And all other opinions and formulae can be great helps, but they are not the primary authority. There is no substitute for God's word, only helps to see what God's word is already saying. And as I say, I wish our members would use those helps a little more. I wish that we would study uh, creeds and confessions and read Christian books more and uh, not only the, the lighter and fluffier ones but the meatier ones and grow into that reading of those meatier ones as well. I wish we would do that more, not less. But read and study God's Word 
and use it to find the answers to your questions and to settle controversies, use that more again. Let it be the ultimate judge rather than resting in other courts as if they should have the last word. And this is something the the reformers themselves uh, learned this, they were alerted to this from the work of some of the so-called Christian humanists around that time, such as Erasmus. Uh, They learned from Christian humanism that uh, you don't just read what others say about the Bible, read the Bible itself. Go back to the primary source and the primary authority. Well, let's, let's look then in the second and final place in more detail at what that means, to have the Bible as our final court, our final court of appeal and our supreme authority. And there is actually a command in the text about this. It's verse 20. In contrast to the people of Israel consulting mediums and spiritists, trying to bypass the word of God and get their their revelation elsewhere. In contrast to that, Isaiah cries out, and it is a cry with with an exclamation mark, uh, to the law and to the testimony, he says, not to the mediums and the spiritists, but to the law and the testimony, to God's word. Law refers to the instruction on how to live. Testimony refers to the, the solemn proclamations of Scripture. In other words, don't bypass the Scripture. Don't look elsewhere for your instruction and your hope and your comfort and your salvation. Don't look elsewhere ultimately than to Christ, to the Messiah and His Word where you learn about Him. Now, significantly, this verse from Isaiah 8 verse 20 is a proof text used in the Westminster Confession. It's it's, uh, used especially in connection with Article 10 for the assertion that Scripture is the supreme judge in all religious controversies. So the Westminster was applying that principle and saying this is not just a matter of going to those people who are using really sinful resources like mediums and spiritists that they should never be having anything to do with. Uh, that they're using that to try and bypass God's word. And to them we say, no, go away from that and go to the law and to the testimonies. But not only that, it also applies in situations where God's people might be inclined to take those enormously helpful resources but give them a weight beyond the scripture and bypass the scripture for them, helpful and godly as they may be. And uh, for example, as I mentioned last, last time, uh, that was done, for example, when Roman Catholicism regarded the Scripture as insufficient and as needing the church and its traditions to supplement the Scripture. So they invented doctrines, made them new traditions, they weren't in the Bible at all, and they were listened to uh, in place of things that the Scripture was saying on those subjects often very contrary to the Scripture. And the Westminster then applies that and says, also to those who do that, and to those who with all good intention uh, do it with other Christian literature today, but bypassing the Bible and avoiding the Bible, uh, to them too, 
the same thing that needs to be said to the law and to the testimonies. Now the Westminster draws out a number of implications from this in these articles and uh, I want to, this is really by way of application of that fundamental principle of not bypassing God's word but taking it as your supreme judge and going to the law and the testimonies for that rather than elsewhere. And the Westminster draws out some principles of Bible interpretation that, are, that follow from that truth. They're implied by it. And I want to go through them briefly uh, because uh, uh, they're very, very helpful for our understanding and use of the Scripture. So I will summarise those by way of application of this truth that we find in, especially in verse 20. One of those, one of those applications is that, the, that trusting the Bible as the supreme judge involves especially the original languages. That's mainly Hebrew and Greek. If the matter cannot be settled by looking to uh, the Bible in the language that we know, that we're familiar with, the vernacular as it's called, or the vulgar language, the language of the common and ordinary people, that was the understanding of it, uh, if it can't be settled by that, then we especially go to look at what is said in the original language to settle controversies. And we do that in our synods when we have reports settling uh, disputed matters. Uh, there's often quite an argument from a Greek word or a Hebrew word and uh, we go back and try and settle it. If we have to, we go back to the original language if we can't sort it out in English. And the reason for that is because this standard that God gave us, this supreme judge and standard, this primary standard that God gave us, he gave it originally, inspired it originally, in Hebrew and Greek mainly. And we have copies of that, copies of those manuscripts, but it was most immediately inspired in Hebrew and in Greek. And uh, that is the, the inerrant, what we say of inerrancy and infallibility, is that that applies to those original manuscripts in Hebrew and in Greek, that they are inerrant and infallible. And so if there's a controversy that we can't figure out using the English Bible, in our case, we go back to those languages. And the Westminster is drawing attention to that uh, also by pointing out that uh, not only were these the languages of the time, but uh, also God uh, immediately revealed his will in those languages and then also preserved those languages, those manuscripts, better than anything else. And more care in his providence to preserving manuscripts in those languages, in the original languages, than in anything else. Than any other book, in fact, any other ancient book ever found in, by any archaeologists or anything of that kind, uh, there's more and more carefully preserved material in that, those two languages than anything else. It doesn't matter which, you know, you can go to Caesar's uh, description of his war, wars in ancient Gaul or Britain or wherever else, and uh, nothing like that, the, the preservation of those is nothing like the incredible and enormous preservation in God's providence of those Hebrew and Greek, Greek manuscripts. And God did that for a reason. And we show that we accept that by turning to the original languages to settle disputes if we have to. And also by having our ministers learn those languages so that they contest what they're saying, their understanding of scripture, 
against the original languages uh, rather than uh, hopefully uh, just uh, teaching out of their own heads or out of their own imagination as to what the scripture says. They can check that. At the same time, we do use translations of the Bible to preach and to read in the local language, the vernacular. The Hebrew and Greek was the most widely understood by the people receiving the Bible at that time, but not now. The Lord demonstrated that he wanted all of his people to be able to read and search the scriptures so that all of God's people could receive that instruction about salvation, about worship, about Christian living. They could receive the hope and the comfort of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and they could settle controversies even when they didn't know Hebrew or Greek but they had the Bible in their own language and otherwise that would have been closed to them to a large extent. And how then would they have been able to do what the Bereans did? to search the scriptures if they couldn't understand. Other principles of interpretation of scripture follow from verse 20 as well. Since the scripture is the supreme authority and judge, we use scripture above all to interpret scripture. We compare scripture with scripture in order to get the best understanding we can. We look at the context of a passage we look at parallel passages. We keep in mind the whole counsel of God in the whole, the whole of his Bible, the whole of the word, to help us interpret specific passages. That's mentioned in Westminster 1.9. But as we saw the other week, some passages are more clear to us than others. And therefore we use uh, the, the most clear passages to clarify the most difficult passages rather than starting the other way, doing it the other way, starting with some uh, dubious and uh, speculative interpretation of a difficult passage and using that to uh, construct a, a whole shaky tower of doctrine. And you see, the, these derive from this principle in that uh, as this, for the scripture to keep its role as uh, being able to be the supreme judge and uh, for us to be able to have answers to our questions, uh, we need to have the right understanding of it. And uh, this is a way of helping to ensure that we do. Another principle of interpretation that 1.9 draws out is that we assume that each passage has only one interpretation rather than several. Because it's very difficult for the scripture to function as a uh, a supreme judge, the supreme court to settle controversy if it's open to all sorts of interpretations. And uh, you imagine if a judge hearing a uh, case and uh, he says, uh, I find this person guilty and then goes on to say, however, when I say I, I find it guilty, there's actually four different senses in which I mean that word guilty. And you've got to figure out which one and how they all work. Or I sentence this person to a year in jail. Oh, but when I say I sentence them to a year in jail, there's actually different interpretations of that and uh, you've got to figure out what really is going on here. Very difficult to be a judge in a situation like that. In the Middle Ages, the church taught that each passage had four different levels of meaning and interpretation. 
And one of those was what is known as an allegorical method of interpretation, where the literal meaning of something uh, has under it a hidden meaning. Uh, think of a book like Pilgrim's Progress, that's allegorical. You have a story at one level, but it has another meaning as well, a spiritual meaning. And every passage, according to that medieval concept, every passage had something like that, as well as other levels of meaning, which in effect opened up every passage in the scripture to all sorts of speculative and fanciful interpretations. And that in turn made it more difficult to settle controversies or to get firm answers to important questions. That is said, though, with the realisation that some passages do have more than one aspect to them. You can have allegory, uh, hidden meanings. For example, in some of the parables. Think of the parable of the different kinds of soils, where the seed falls on different types of soil. And the Lord Jesus went on to explain what each of the elements in that story, what it was referring to in regard to a spiritual meaning. Or you can have apocalyptic visions like in the book of Revelation where you have the words themselves and what they're literally saying but they're symbolic. Or you can have typology, the foreshadowing of Christ in the Old Testament where you can have several levels of fulfilment. Maybe part of it referring to what happens when Israel comes back from Babylon uh, part of it referring to the first coming of Christ and then another fulfilment, a greater one, when the Lord Jesus returns. So you can have all of these things uh, going on and we actually see some of that operating in Isaiah 8 where Isaiah says that the, the testimony is to be bound up and the law sealed among him and his disciples, verse 16, where this language of being bound up and sealed means that these prophecies that he is giving the people, um, they're not going to be, it's not going to be clear to the people exactly what they mean until the future, until the time of fulfilment. And meanwhile, they have to be bound up and sealed. They're closed to people's understanding, their full understanding. And yet, at the same time, Isaiah and his disciples have some idea of what it means. They realise it's talking about the hope found in the Messiah, Jesus Christ. They don't know all the detail on that, but they know something of the Messiah. And so they hang on to that hope and their comfort and they hold that in their hearts while they're waiting for those prophecies to be unbound and made uh, more easily uh, able to be understood. And the same is true with the significance of the names of Isaiah's Children, in Isaiah 7, 3 and 8, verse 3, where there's a literal meaning of those names, but then there's also pointing to something still to come. A level of meaning understood then to a degree, but the full meaning hidden until the prophecy is revealed in the future. But the thing is, we mustn't assume that every passage is like that. If we know from the passage itself that those elements are present, then we can accept that. And we, but otherwise, we don't assume that every passage has four different levels of meaning. What is most important in this, though, is that until that time, the faithful, like Isaiah, wait for the Lord and eagerly look for him, verse 17. 
even when we don't fully understand the Scripture. And it, it doesn't matter uh, how good you are at interpreting the Scripture, you will always find passages that you don't fully understand. And I've mentioned the book of Revelation a few times. That's, uh, that's one where you may find that for yourselves, that there are things that we don't understand. There are things where we don't find the answers. There are, there are, there are questions that we have where we don't find the answers that we feel that we need. And yet, we continue to trust the Lord and wait for him to show us what we need to know and wait for him to unfold his purposes in his own time. And as that happens, we continue to regard the Scripture as the supreme authority and judge rather than saying, ah, this is no help. The Bible's no help to me. I need to look elsewhere. It is important that we accept our own limitations in this rather than accusing the Scripture of being limited or flawed or useless. The problem lies with us. And then in the meantime, to keep looking eagerly for the Lord and to the Lord and what he has ahead of us. For those who love him and who love his son and who love the word of Christ and continue to accept the supreme authority of that word with all that it teaches, even when there are things that we don't understand, without trying to replace or to supplement it. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, would you help us to appreciate and to use the helpful material available to aid us in understanding your word, creeds and confessions and Christian books and commentaries, and the wisdom of fellow believers as well. But Father, do not let us raise anything above our primary standard, your word. Would you enable us to grow in familiarity with your word and in the understanding of it? Father, cause us to be quick to search the scriptures like the Bereans when we need answers and quick to accept what it says as the supreme and final authority because it is your word. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We need the Lord's help to do his will and uh, that help comes through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ uh, taught to us, applied by word and spirit a word that tells us his will sufficiently, clearly and authoritatively. Psalter Hymnal 164, stanzas 1, 5 and 7 and uh, we'll stand to sing and would you please remain standing afterwards for the blessing and doxology. 164, stanzas 1, 5 and 7.
After the blessing is our doxology, we sing number 280 from the Psalter Hymnal, stanzas 1 and 3. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. <laughs> 